right, thank you, Robert. We'll wait until we're live. All right, well, thank you for joining us online. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, uh, and we're continuing on looking at Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers. And again, uh, I thought this was a, a good thing for us to, to look at and recognize and see how, um, how an apostle prayed, and it's a good way for us to pray for ourselves. Uh, of course, the Apostle Paul's praying for this. It's probably something we should be praying for for ourselves, and also something that we should be praying for uh, for our brothers and sisters, both here at Bible Baptist and uh, elsewhere around the world. So look with me, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Um, we're going to go ahead and read verses 3 through 9, and we're going to be spending most of our time, well, actually all of our time uh, this evening, focusing particularly on verse 9. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, so in conclusion of all these things that we've, I've been giving thanks for, from the day we heard, the day they heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. And now we see the thanksgiving was given. What is it in particular that Paul is praying for? And we see, first of all, he asks that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So just to quickly review what we've been looking at for the last several months uh, as we've been looking at this passage, we see that Paul's prayer is first and foremost grounded in thanksgiving. He gives thanks for what God has been accomplishing in the hearts of these Colossian believers. He gives thanksgiving for their faith, thanksgiving for their love, thanksgiving for the hope that they have, and thanksgiving for the gospel that uh, they know. So he's essentially saying, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your coming to faith in Christ. I give thanks for all the results of that, sort of the foundational aspects of, of what that means, faith, love, hope, and what the gospel is doing. And so now... He doesn't just leave them there. You know, th these things, these principles, faith, love, hope, the gospel, that is, forms the basis of a continuing growth in the Christian life. And so what we come to find at the rest of this uh, first section of Colossians chapter 1 is Paul is praying specifically that the Colossian believers would grow. That having the foundation laid of faith, hope, and love, having the gospel taking root in their lives, he's now praying that that would affect them by growth. And just to quickly sort of show you where we're headed, uh, what particular things Paul prays for that they would grow in, we see he first prays that they would grow in knowledge, and we're going to be considering that this, this evening. And then that knowledge, and the other thing to note about these things is they build upon each other. So knowledge, once you know the implications of the gospel, you have that um, established in wisdom and understanding, then what's the next thing that's going to be affected? If you see this in verse um, 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So knowledge then produces actions. 
And he wants them to grow in their actions. That, their, that the fruit of a life that trusts and rests in the gospel will be seen in the way that that person lives their life. But then he seeks to point the Colossian believers to how they find strength for that life. How do they, how do they find the power and the energy? And he seeks for them to grow in strength, particularly strengthened with the power of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then we see he finally calls on them to grow in thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father. And so it's interesting how this prayer is bookended with thanksgiving. He begins by giving thanks for the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith taking root in their lives. He then prays for them to grow in knowledge and actions and strength, and then that the result of that would be that they would, along with Paul, give thanks for what God is doing in their life. So again, these things build upon each other. The more you know, the more you should act in light of that knowledge. The more you act, the more you look to God's strength to carry you through what he's called you to do. And then as you see him giving you the strength to carry you through, the response should be one of thanksgiving. So that's a lot to cover, and that's sort of the crib notes, quick overview, but we're going to spend the next several months looking at all those different things. But tonight, we're going to begin looking at Paul's prayer for their growth in knowledge. And we see this again in verse 9. And so, again, he, this is sort of paralleling what he said at the, at the first part in verse 3. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, he says in verse 4, we are always giving thanks to God. So the prayer is given or began as he hears of their faith. The same thing goes on here in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard of their love, of their faith, of their hope in the gospel, um, Paul has not ceased to pray for them. Now, I think it's important to note here how important prayer is to Paul. He doesn't sort of haphazardly go about remembering the Colossian believers in prayer. Notice how consistent he is. From the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is immensely concerned with the growth of these believers. He's immensely concerned that they grow in all these things he's going to talk about, but he recognizes that he needs to come and pray before God. He prays that they would do this, and he does it every time he prays. He, he has the Colossian believers, if you will, on his prayer list, so that every time he goes before the Lord, he's praying for them. Um, now, that, that sounds like almost like Paul is maybe being a little uh, uh, embellishing here. Like, really, every time he prays, he remembers the Colossian believers. But remember, this is Paul writing this, but he's writing it under the inspiration of who? The Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is moving upon Paul to say this. He is truly that committed to praying for these believers. What type of commitment do you have in prayer? How often do you come before the Lord in prayer? Um, how often do you come before the Lord in prayer for yourself? You know, all these principles that we're going to look at, they need to be in action in your life. They're clearly a part of what God has given in his word. Are you praying for them? Are you praying earnestly? Are you praying often for them? 
How often are you praying for other believers, other people in this congregation or other friends or family that you know that are Christians, that they would have these things uh, in action in their life? How, how often are you praying for unbelievers, that, that those that you know in your sphere of influence, those who you don't even know in your sphere of influence, that, that the world would come to find these truths in action in their lives? How often are you praying for these things? And again, we see the example given of Paul. We have not ceased to pray for you. He doesn't, he's not ambiguous. He doesn't beat around the bush about what he's doing. He's praying consistently for these believers. And so we should take up that challenge to be consistent in our prayer. But what is it in particular that he prays for? And the first thing we see is he prays for them that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays for them to have knowledge, that they would grow in knowledge. Now, what is this knowledge? What type of knowledge is Paul talking about? Um, there are all sorts of different types of knowledge. I mean, we, we recognize this today, all right? So I, I know how to drive a car, all right? I know how to sit in the wheel. I know the principles of everything that's involved with that. I know that when I push the accelerator, the car will accelerate. When I push the brake, you know, hopefully if everything's working, the car will slow down. I know how to, how to, how to turn the turn signals on. I know how to use the steering wheel, all sorts of different things like that. I can have a knowledge of that, but that knowledge does me no good if I'm not able to put it into practice when I sit behind the wheel of a car. I can have all the theory up here, but unless I'm able to apply the theory to my life, is that knowledge any good? No. I mean, think about it with the car illustration of someone who's looking to take their driving test. All right, there's two parts of a driving test. The first part of the driving test you take, and it's all about the knowledge of the laws for driving in Pennsylvania, what, is, what, what the shapes of the signs look like, how far you're supposed to park away from a fire hydrant, uh, you know, how close to the curb you're supposed to be, what, you know, all, sorts of, all sorts of crazy things that we need to know as we're driving on the roads today. But when someone takes that, that written exam, does the state just say, okay, you're good to go, and give a 16-year-old a full open driver's license that they can just jump in the car and go. Is that what Pennsylvania does? No. Why? Because that knowledge, that head knowledge, that, that um, uh, principle knowledge needs to be related in the way that they learn it practically. And so they have to have their learner's permit. They spend time learning how to apply the truth that they learned there and then they have to take another test and that other test isn't a written test it's a driving test someone watches them and sees how they've applied that knowledge so which knowledge is Paul asking for the Colossian believers to grow in and I think we can clearly see it implies the conceptual knowledge but really the word that he uses here in the original Greek has the idea of practical knowledge or knowledge that is um, com comprehensive and that affects the way a person lives. Notice he says, we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This knowledge is knowledge that affects 
Every aspect of them. In, in other words, the gospel truths that form the foundation of their Christian life, they are transforming not just the way that they think, but also the way that they act. Now, this same word is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, and, and I think it helps to illustrate, when we look at Romans chapter 3, what kind of knowledge Paul is talking about. He particularly talks about the law. So, let me ask you, give me some, some, some aspect of the law, the Old Testament law that you remember. What's something you remember from the Old Testament law? Just anything. All right, don't boil cadence. I don't know why that, that's the one that came to my head, my mind too. For some reason, that's the one that everyone's like, okay, we're not supposed to boil a kid in its mother's milk, all right? There's one. What else? From the Old Testament law. Don't, that's the other one. Don't wear mixed, don't wear mixed cloth. You can't mix cotton and, I mean, they didn't have polyester back then, but you can't mix cotton and polyester, different types of wools together. All right, you can't eat pigs. That no ham. Very, very sad, sad commandment. What else? I mean, th those are sort of the ones that we think of as sort of the kooky ones, but don't touch a dead body. How about thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not murder? Honor your father and your mother? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Love your neighbor as yourself? Be holy, for I am holy. I mean, there, there are a litany of different laws given in the Old Testament law. What, is that, what are we supposed to do with that? How, how is that supposed to affect us? And here's the thing. I've been able to demonstrate that you have a conceptual knowledge of it. But how do you know when that's actually affecting you practically? And is that found in... Keeping the law. Well, look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. All right, so here's, here's the point. Paul says, you hear the law, the law is supposed to stop your mouth. It's supposed to shut you up. Why? So that the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then notice what he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And then here we go, since through the law comes, and this is the same Greek word as what Paul is using in Colossians, that we would grow in knowledge. Since through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. So what is the practical application of the law that Paul is pointing out here? It's not do this and live. Because what we recognize that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we keep these things, no matter how much we avoid mixed clothing and kids boiled in their mother's milk, and no matter how much we avoid touching a dead body, no matter how much we avoid doing uh, all the things, or not doing all the things that the law commands we shouldn't do, and doing all the things that the law commands us to do, there's only one true knowledge that it's supposed to bring about, and that's that I am a what? Sinner. That I fail to meet God's righteous standard. 
This is this type of practical knowledge. What is the law supposed to do? It's supposed to shut your mouth because you realize you can't justify yourself before God. And then you shut your mouth because you realize you're going to stand and be held accountable to God. This is a great verse to point to people when they say, well, I hope to live you know, by the Ten Commandments. Really? Because the point of the Ten Commandments is not for you to know that you're going to stand before God justified. The point of the Ten Commandments is to show you that you're in sin. Through the law comes practically a knowledge of sin. And we see how this works out. I mean, Jesus makes this clear appeal as he intensifies the law. You you have heard it said. And then it talks about an external law. And Jesus says, but I say unto you, if you've done this where? In your heart. You've broken this law. So the law is come to show us that we are sinners. That is the practical application of the law. That's the type of knowledge of the law that Paul is asking or praying that the believers in Colossae would understand. That they would understand that they, that, and notice that this points back to the gospel. And the, before the good news is good news, you have to understand the bad news. And this is what Paul is calling on them to recognize. The following verses call the reader to recognize that there's no hope within themselves. But then Paul goes on in the rest of this passage in Romans 3, 21 through 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through what? In who? Jesus Christ. For all who believe. And then here's the wonderful hope. There is no distinction. What is the knowledge of the law, as Paul is arguing here in Romans 3, supposed to do? It's supposed to drive us to Christ. It's to show us that God has manifested his righteousness in a way apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law, who kept the law perfectly? Christ. The prophets, who did they speak of that would come and keep the law perfectly? Christ. These two things bear witness to the fact that Christ is our only hope. So what is the practical application of the knowledge of the law? Trust in Jesus. Find the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's available to everyone who believes. Jew, Gentile, American, European, African, Asian, all nations are given this wonderful hope. It's a call to trust in him. Now, what would be an example then of someone who knows the law but doesn't have the knowledge Paul is talking about here in Romans or in Colossians 1? Can anyone think of a group of people that have knowledge of the law but not this type of practical knowledge? The Pharisees, or we can broaden it out and say just the entire Jewish nation. Wouldn't it be great if Paul actually said that? Oh, wait, he does. 
Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. And then notice what he says. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? Knowledge. Not according to this deep-seated practical knowledge. They are, in fact, ignorant. And what are they ignorant of? The righteousness of God. Where is that righteousness of God found? It's not found in ourselves. It's found where? As what Paul said in Romans 3. Found in Christ Jesus. But they, because of their ignorance, what do they try to do? They try to establish their own righteousness. Seeking uh, and seeking to not submit to God's righteousness. And then here we have the point. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Practically, what the law is given to do is to show us our need of Christ and then to call us to cry out to him, to find and to place faith in him. Now, the problem that we have today is the same problem that the Jews had. It's the same problem humanity has had from the beginning. And that is that we want to justify ourselves based on our works. And so we hear things like, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. It's interesting the one about lying. Because lying is not just about not telling false truths, right, or off the opposite of truth. It's also being truthful in your interactions with someone, not seeking to deceive. As Jesus says, you let your yes be what? Yes, and your no be no. You don't, if you swear an oath, you, you go through with it. Now, what had happened in those days that had twisted that? Well, the Pharisees recognized that they wanted in their hearts to be able to be deceitful and not be people of their words, but yet still have a formal adherence to the law. So they would say, I swear by the temple or I swear by these other things rather than swearing by the Lord because then they could weasel out of it. They sought to not have a righteousness from God, but they sought to establish it on their own. And what's amazing is that as we seek to establish righteousness on our own, we end up finding ways around what God requires so that we can indulge our flesh. Back to Colossians chapter 1. Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge, this type of practical knowledge, that it would not just be a matter of being able to fill our minds with data or information, being able to recite I don't have a mixed garment, or I haven't eaten a kid that's been boiled in its mother's milk recently. But rather, recognizing that practical knowledge, as Paul has said, that shows me I need to turn to Christ. And then from that, there comes a, a flood of other practical things that affect our lives. So this comprehensive and practical knowledge is the first step in this long pursuit that Paul is praying that the Colossian believers and us would have. But then notice, to what extent are we to have this type of knowledge? Notice what he says. He is praying, asking that they would be what? Filled 
with that knowledge. This practical knowledge is something that they are supposed to be filled with. This means that the Christian grows by means of an ever-growing understanding and application of the gospel. We are constantly seeking to grow and be filled more and more with the truths of the gospel and then living those things out. Now, this is something that's anticipated by the prophets in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34. Speaking of the New Covenant, God says through Jeremiah, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all, what? Know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with what? Knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this change that happens within as God puts his law within our hearts, as he gives us a new heart, Ezekiel speaks of how that practically looks. When we have that type of knowledge, when God gives us one heart and a new spirit, removing the heart of stone of flesh and giving us a heart of flesh, what's the result? That we would what? Walk in his statutes and keep his rules and obey them. And then that is the determiner of a people who are God's people and of a people who have God as their God. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You understand that that the gospel hope that my righteousness is not in the law but is found in Christ, but then the effect of that hope that changes my life and moves me to be a person who is living according to God's statutes, they are together. You cannot separate them. It is a gospel reality that if we come to faith in Christ, we will act out that faith in Christ. And that's done through our being filled with this knowledge. See, When we recognize this truth, when we do something that is good, when we obey God's word, we recognize that it's not a testimony to our righteousness. It's a testimony to God's grace working within us, transforming us so that we can live for him. This is the work that Christ continues to do in his people. Notice in John 17, 25 through 26, as he's Ending this prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. Now, there's the great example. Who is the person who's walked the earth that has truly been filled with the knowledge of God? It is Christ. And what has Christ done? He knows them and he knows those that uh, and these know that you have sent me and I made known to them their name or your name and What does Christ promise to continue to do? He continues to make it known so that, and then we have that love that Paul has already given thanks for in in the Colossian believers, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And then John gives testimony to this in his prologue. No one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made him what? Known. And he continues to make him known. So how does this filling 
with the knowledge of God work within us? How does this, this, this prayer that Paul has, that we would be filled with this knowledge, how does it work its way out? And it works its way out in our minds that change our actions. We know this very well. Don't be conformed to this world. How do we put off the world in conformity to it? We are transformed by the renewal of our mind. So that by testing, we can discern what is the will of God, which is exactly what Paul is saying here to the Colossians believers, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Peter, as he ends his second epistle, so sort of summing up everything he's written in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, what is his prayer? Grow in grace and what? Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him, both now and to the day of eternity, um, be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So when Paul calls and prays for the Colossian believers to grow or be filled with knowledge. He's talking about a lifelong pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. Not the knowledge of rules, but the knowledge of Christ. And that the more that we know him, the more we'll be transformed to be like him. And that will then produce, as he says again in verse 9, as we're filled with this knowledge, it is particularly knowledge of his will. He's praying that as the foundational work of the gospel grows within us, we would be able to know the will of God. Now, that term, the will of God, so often I think we have trouble with what that means because we think that, well, I've got to know what is God's will for what college I'm going to go to? What is God's will for what I'm supposed to do today? Or what is God's will for this or for that? And we look for these specificities to God's will. And oftentimes we relegate knowing what God's will is to what we call having peace or also what I like to call warm fuzzies, all right? You know, we have two options in front of us and we think about one or the other. I've got warm fuzzies about this one option and then that must be God's will, right? Is there a danger in going after the warm fuzzies? Absolutely, because... Even though we're redeemed, we still have hearts that are deceitful and desperately wicked. And although we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, can we still not also be self-deceived in these things? Yes. So how then do we find, how then do we attain the will of God? How do we be filled with knowledge so that we can know God's will? Well, it goes back to that gospel focus. Paul is praying that the Colossian believers would be filled with God's, with the knowledge of God, particularly that knowledge, that practical knowledge of what the gospel is doing within them, so that they would know God's will. What was God's will, particularly at that time, concerning some practical things? So like, what was God's will concerning them paying homage to the, the trade guild gods in Colossae? Well, how does the gospel inform that decision? Would the gospel save someone so that they could worship another god no so you see how the gospel is able to help them understand what god's will would be about worshiping another god no matter how 
difficult and strong the cultural pressure would be upon them to worship that God. They would be very easy for them to justify worshiping that God. I mean, after all, Paul elsewhere says that if you're not providing for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. I've got to provide for my family. What was God's will regarding to what they should do or how they would spend time in the arenas? What was God's will regarding uh, how they would relate to those who were persecuting them? How does the gospel inform those things? Remember, we're practically living out the righteousness of Christ in our lives. That's the way that we can see what the knowledge of God's will is. Now, there are various nuances to these particular questions, but the basic need in understanding God's will relates back to the knowledge of God they had in Christ through the gospel. The gospel was the thing that directed their decisions. And when they looked to the gospel, they would see what God's will was. They would find, as Paul says in the second half here of verse 9, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, this spiritual wisdom, this complete wisdom and this complete understanding. Stay tuned next, well not next week, but in two weeks. We'll talk about that and particularly how that's worked out in the way of how we apply this practical knowledge of the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is a kind and gentle and loving shepherd, that he guides and directs us in all things, Father. And, Lord, he provides his righteousness as our only hope, that by faith in him we are united to him. Lord, you do not count our trespasses, our sins against us, but rather you see the righteousness of Christ. Father, may your word, may your law continue to help us to grow in the knowledge of him, not looking to ourselves for self-righteousness, but looking to Christ. Father, may we seek to leave here being filled with that knowledge so that we can discern, we can know what your will is. May the gospel be the thing that constrains and shapes and guides our decisions as your spirit works in our hearts. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.